Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. The Sound and Vision podcast book is now available for pre-order. Why I Make Art features an in-depth look at 30 artists, from Chris Martin to Robin Williams. There's also thematic quote sections and images from sketches artists contributed to the Sound and Vision guest book. It has a foreword written by Rishikesh Hirway of the Song Exploder podcast and Netflix show. You can get your copy at the Altelier Editions website. There's a link in the Sound and Vision website to pre-order yours today. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join this summer in New York City or virtually from anywhere in the world. To learn from dedicated artists and to expand as a maker in the school's legendary marathon program. Rigorous and immersive marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time daily and present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Expansive first-hand discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. Generous, partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden make their signature line of acrylic paints, core watercolors, and Williamsburg oils. I'm starting a new group of paintings, and I'm really excited to get into it with my Golden Gesso matte mediums and my Golden Acrylics. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and it's never failed me in the studio. The new line of So Flat gives a supremely matte surface, and if you're after shine, the gloss varnish does an amazing job. It's an employee-owned company based in upstate New York. Golden's available in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Based in Seattle, Fulcrum makes incredible coffee that you can have delivered to your door. They have subscription services where you can have different blends delivered that you tailor to your favorite balance of coffee beans. You could save 20% on your order by entering the code ALFREDSTUDIO when you order from their site. Check out their amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Tim Kinsella released albums and toured internationally at a steady clip for 25 years. His most well-known bands being Joan of Arc, Cap and Jazz, and Owls. He is the author of four books and the subject of the 2017 Vice Noisy feature documentary, Your War, I'm One of You. More recently, he played a lead role in the award-winning feature film First Nest in 2021. Collaborating with his wife Jenny Pulse since 2018, the duo released two albums and toured as Good Fuck, making a practice of writing and recording in remote locations far from their Chicago home. The first releases to come out under their own names are the forthcoming Gimme Altamont EP and the album Giddy Skelter. You're listening to a track of theirs right now. If you're unfamiliar with Tim's music, make sure you check out Joan of Arc, Captain Jazz and Owls. I spoke to Tim about growing up in the Chicago area, 
primal screams, writing novels, emerging from the critics, the changes in music since the internet and COVID, making music that's truly singular, and much more. Here's our conversation. Um, yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to do this. Thanks for doing it. You know, it's, um, as a long-time listener, first-time caller, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's cool to talk to you because, uh, you know, I had thought before, uh, maybe I'll reach out and ask to talk because there were some questions that I felt like would be fun to to ask. But, Mm -hmm. um, I was talking to Andrew Schultz. He is a pretty great artist and he's a fervent skateboarder and a cool guy from Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And um, we did a podcast and I was talking and we were getting into some music and, you know, some of your music came up in it. And I was like, oh, yeah. So oh, hence cool. the invite. It, it jogged yeah. my memory. Oh, I'll have to check <clears throat> out his work. Yeah, cool. Yeah, he's great. Um, but yeah, I and I, I must attest that, you know, I saw the, the documentary, uh-huh. which yeah. I thought was pretty great. And um, that kind of also made me compelled to to want to, you know, talk a little more about things. Um, when did that? When did that? How did that come about? That was amazing because it was a real testament to like you know at the time we had you know manager, publicist, yeah. you know a couple record labels and like. Really, that happened because uh, we finished practice one night, and me and Melina walked into the rainbow, and we sat down on the couch, and this guy walked up, and he was like, hey, you're Tim. And I was like, yeah, how's it going? And he's like, oh, you used to teach at UFC, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I went to school there. And then we just talked about, like, uh, the school and what it was like to work there and what it was like to go there. And then like after like 15 minutes, he's like, he's like, Oh, I'm going to go. But, um, you know, I, uh, do this thing called noisy. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm aware of noisy. He's like, Oh yeah. You know, we should talk sometime. And I was like, uh, okay. And then, um, he was just like, do you want to do this thing? So I, I loved that it just, happened with like layers of organic happening it wasn't like set up by a publicity machine and it wasn't even when the conversation started you know he greeted me by you know saying like oh i know your bands that's how i recognize you but that we it's not like we even talked about my bands we just talked about our lives and then he yeah. was like i'll do this you know yeah that's sounds like a good step into it it's funny i had like an experience early on in my career i'd only had i think like two shows and then this woman called me a young actually she was young and she was like hey i'm i'm doing i'm producing these sort of like mini documentaries where there's no there's no audio or there's no talking but basically it's like a short to introduce people to artists work and you know i got funding to do a pilot so i wanted to do it with you if that's okay and i was like yeah sure no big deal i thought you know they're going to come in and put a camera in there and do a time lapse. And that was it. It turned out like two people from DreamWorks worked on it. It was amazing. It was in Sundance. And I had no <laughs> idea when they did it. They basically came and set up a camera and did a time lapse of me making a painting. And then they yeah. did the rest. But it was amazing. And 
it's still on YouTube. Like it's still how some people see the work, right. but it's fun when something that, you know, you think is just going to be like, yeah, whatever thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. And it, it's like super impactful. Or yeah. I mean, I was like writes a chapter in a way. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to that guy, Justin, who made it, um, for a while, it was really when he said goodbye that he was like, oh, and I'm second in charge at this thing, <laughs> this major platform, and right. we should do this thing. Um, the weird thing about the documentary was, and, you know, I watched it once when it came out, uh, so it's... And I was kind of squirming the whole time, you know. Um, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> just like oh, that's a stupid thing to say, or like, you know, does my neck look fat from that angle, or whatever, you know, just like whatever <laughs> stupid vanity, exactly. insecurity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I was shocked because during the interviews, you know, he's asking me about high school. He's asking me about, you know, early musical experiences. So I just assumed... And he's doing these interviews with everyone, so I just assumed he's asking them about high school and their early music experiences. And it wasn't until I saw the documentary that I was like, oh my God, he's asking them about me in high school. He's asking them about my early music experiences. Yeah. Like, I thought this was about all of us, and this is like very much a me thing. Um, so that was pretty weird. No one was ever like... Now my bandmates were weird or mad about it or anything, but it, I felt weird, you know, because in my mind, Joan of Arc was always, you know, that kind of thing where like the CEO is the janitor and, um, <laughs> I just kind of felt like I was like the admin and the secretary for a big group of people doing a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. well, but front, you know, in music, the mm -hmm. front person usually takes a lot of the shine you know right right but it's funny because they did frame it as a Joan of Arc documentary but it was really about you I mean it was about the band yeah. but it was also about you know your prior band and it was about mm -hmm. sort of like your life and stuff which I found great the reason I thought it was really great too is because I have a relationship of listening to that music from a distance and I mm -hmm. think back when we were you know around in that era of the you know late 90s mm -hmm. early 2000s there wasn't a lot of peripheral, you know, ways to catch up or know mm -hmm. stuff about people or even get a feeling like you might have one live show that you could see on videotape or something. But yeah, it was well, basically there, your memories of it, what you right. saw, you saw, and what you didn't see, you didn't know. Well, there was no streaming, so you couldn't, like, you know, now I hear 10 new bands a day because I've just gotten in the habit of, like, quickly checking out everything anyone mentions on social media. Right. And that was the other thing about, like, not, like, uh, like, I was never on Facebook, but I, so, like, Instagram was my first thing, and um, I was so surprised by, like, like, what is this? Like, people want to have kind of, like, conversations, but knowing that everyone else is like listening like i i mean i know we're doing a pocket that's exactly what we're doing but this is a different format yeah that totally. that was just like a weird like uh you know evolution of ego and sense of self that like i had missed like some developmental stages you know 
Yeah, well, you did the pro move by going straight to Instagram because Facebook was that times 20. Like it was yeah. basically airing out. The reason I, I was on there for a little and then I left because it just seemed to be like a stream of bad news and complaining yeah. and too much information. And I was like, what am I doing on here? Yeah, well, at I least joined. Instagram, it's like visual. It's mostly pictures. You know? Right, right. Yeah. At this point, I do. I mean, I remember when I joined too, having this you know, naive utopian idea of like, this is amazing. It's an like auto generated or like a, a collage, like a time-based collage that everyone curates for themselves. And just like the people, you know, and like are, it's like, Oh, this is what I'm looking at. This is what I'm looking at. And it's right. different for everyone. And I'm like, that's amazing. And, you know, now it's just advertising. And I'm like, well, every, <laughs> every utopic vision dissolves into dystopia in some yeah. sense. I mean, that's human nature, I think. Mm. You know? But I will posit this, maybe more so than art. Music is the great defier of that, I believe. Because I think music is the one thing in life that is, you know that connects outside of the... I mean, there is the music business and whatever, all the bullshit, right. but music connects with people one-to-one. They, they listen to it, it yeah. goes in their ear hole, it <clears throat> vibrates, and they feel it. And, you know, there's there can be discourse about it, but it really... There doesn't need to be. Yeah, it's... And, right, it's... Uh, in, the appreciation is instinctive. <clears throat> like, I do think, like... Um, you know, people become specialists in a way of like, um, you know, if you know all these various can bootlegs, you have a better sense of uh, which is a better performance of a particular song or something, or, right. you know, more inspired performance. You know, like obviously you can get specialized, but um, it, right. The ideal you don't is need that to. it's, yeah. Right, you can just. It's not a prerequisite. That's the yeah. thing about visual art. I feel like you you kind of can, but visual art leans on the history of images and the sort of you know the the conceptual side of it integrated within that that historical path that exists in music. But you could listen to you know Daft Punk and want to shake your ass and have no idea what Herbie Hancock did in the seventies. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like you don't yeah, have yeah. to know the lineage. That right. may deepen your knowledge of it, but whether you want to shake your butt yeah. or not, you know, you feel right, it. Right. So, yeah, it's, you know, the difference between music and the music business is like so extreme. And I know that's like, you know, the difference between like uh, LaCroix and selling LaCroix is obviously very extreme you know but like the embedded values that music itself you know can potentially represent and its power versus you know this worst in humanity that like sort of defines the yeah it's 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 a funny time for me to talk to you because, um, you know, the last 
couple decades, really, I've become such a uh, self-aware, unshakable optimist, you know? And I really feel like I couldn't do anything I do if it wasn't for, like, a really often naive sense of, like, yeah, well, we just do it. Let's just do it. Why not? We can do it. <laughs> and, well, that got uh, us this far. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's I'm I'm just you know circumstantially it it's an industry wide meltdown of like you know the, from the engineers who are like frustrated because you know like I had a um, friend who's a mastering engineer get really mad at me because. He wanted to offer me a friend rate to master something, but it was more than three times what the guy I usually work with was doing it for. And he's yeah. like, but these kids, they just come up and they, you know, so it's like the the engineers can't get paid anymore. This recording happens at home, so the studios, excuse me, have a hard time. Yeah, The labels are like overwhelmed by the amount of music being, people are presenting to them, the uh, manufacturing is backlogged for a year and a half, and then you like bring that to a label and compound that delay on every label, every band on the label's roster, and it's like, oh, this is great, yeah, we can have it out in two years, and then it's like, well, what am I supposed to do for two years? Like, right. So yeah, I'm feeling really uh, like, oh, that I I I don't see a path forward. It's real. I I can totally relate to to that sentiment, and you know when I think about music in that sense of, you know the the development of recordings and you know how the business was related to the making and all that, it kind of like steadily grew and it it grew with just like almost like the technology with the singularity mm -hmm. of like you know things were progressing and they they they're happening in concert with the progression of people and then all of a sudden it just like hits a fever pitch where it blows mm -hmm. up and what happens is that the group that are making the money or like controlling that business side of it gets so isolated and it gets so far away from the fabric of how it's being made like mm -hmm. you know it's like the restaurant tour versus being in a kitchen it gets so separated right, right. that it just like you feel like it'll never get back to that and then what happens is it a snap or does you know i don't know i mean it's funny because since getting vaccinated you know like everyone i didn't see any live music for i don't know a year and a half or something mm -hmm. and um during that whole time, I never missed playing shows, but I missed going to shows. Like, I missed seeing other people play. Right. Um, and, you know, in the previous decade, if I'm playing 100 shows a year, I'm not super in the mood to go to a ton of shows right. when I'm not playing. Yeah. So it was weird that, like, oh, what I really miss is seeing other people play, but... Um, you know, since getting vaccinated, I'm going out like four nights a week just seeing everything. And a lot of it is bands that I don't know. I just read the description and then I like don't check out the record before I go to see it. And it's um, it's so satisfying. Yeah. I, I, I'm like the worst 
person in the world to ask if a band is good these days because everything I see, I just come <laughs> home and I'm like, that I just saw the greatest band I've ever seen. <laughs> and, you know? Yeah, it's like, well, you take something away from someone, right? Mm-hmm. For a while, yeah. and then you don't you you really realize what a gift it is to just be able yeah. to do it. You know? Yeah, I, I honestly, I think I've been two live shows since you know shut down shut down because we were mm-hmm. pretty hardcore mm-hmm. and um yeah it's i've been meaning to go to more thing i've just been a little crazy with having a show in the book and stuff but yeah but i, mean, I definitely kid. i do yeah one and yeah one one's good yeah sure <laughs> one is a lot more than zero yeah yeah in this case I'm, yeah i'm busy enough with it yeah but i mean he's in high school he does his own thing now so but, oh uh, but yeah, he you know back before he played music a lot, and he was in a mm-hmm. music program in school, and he was tough because when he went to his middle school, which was a music school, they didn't he played guitar, they didn't have a guitar in orchestra, so they just gave him a trombone. So he was playing trombone, and he he picked it up, and he was doing great. And like a year and a half, you know, it's three years of middle school, year half in, shut down, mm-hmm. no music, you can't play right. music. Like it was, right. they tried to do this online thing. Can you imagine like? an orchestra over zoom it's right it's like a shit show <laughs> it's yeah like they were playing along to some program and it never worked right it was glitchy and yeah it was a disaster it like killed it you know yeah i'm sure yeah but uh but yeah i've i've been wanting to see more music but i did go see a show and it was just like i was i couldn't believe it you take something like that away for a couple years and then you go see it and it's it's pretty great you know yeah and chicago sort of feels i feel like what years were you here? Late 90s? Was, no, I was never there. I mean, I just, um, I have a lot of friends. Who, oh, you, you never know, even lived here? No, I've never lived in Chicago. Oh, that's so I had funny. an opportunity. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, I went to Penn State for undergraduate school. When I applied to grad school, I applied to UCLA Art Institute and Yale. And I got into all of them. And I got a full scholarship to Chicago. But... All my friends from Pittsburgh were moving to Chicago to play music. And I thought to myself, if I go to Chicago for grad school, I'm never going to make art. I'm just going to be playing music the whole time. So why would I do that? I could do that afterwards. Right, right. So I went to Yale, and then I ended up meeting people there, starting a band. And we recorded our records, Mm. or at least our second record at Electrical. So I spent time there, but all my friends were there. You know, like all the guys I grew up with went there to play music music so i was i visited but i was never there oh it's so funny i mean that's right it's one of those things too like pre-social media i mean i think about this like now there's certain people that i knew a little bit that like just depending on how active they are on social media it's like oh my god i know every thought you have like this is crazy (laughs) yeah yeah you got the whole narrative yeah, and it used to just be like, you know, if you have a crush on someone and you see them at this one bar, you're like, oh, I hope that person shows up there again, <laughs> you know? Maybe come back. <laughs> yeah, or like, I have no idea what this person's name is or who they're friends with or something. Now it's just like you can just chart everything, you know? Yeah, in five minutes you have the life story. You could do the background check, everything. You know, you know. Right, what I mean, if anyone would have asked me, um, you know, if I knew you, I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, you used to live in Chicago. Well, but it's that's good lore. <laughs> but it's, uh, 
it's also the frequency with which you run into someone. It might be like you were here enough, right? That the in be- time in between, I'm not seeing you on social media saying, "I'm not in Chicago." Right, <laughs> right. Well, those and those were the days when we were visiting and recording there, and you know, my friends were active there. That was the early 2000s, and but the iPhone was invented in 2007, which is kind of mm. crazy to mm-hmm. think it's been like 13 years or 15 years since it's really because it yeah. took a while anyway for the internet to blow up i mean they made the phones yeah. but then you know and now it's like you said it's everything everywhere all the time yeah the compounding of uh time warps i'm not sure what to attribute to covid what to attribute to smartphones and what's just getting older you know i totally agree you know it's funny before covid and before the internet got too crazy i used to say to you know talk to students and say you know there used to be a linear art history where like there was Mm -hmm. movement same with music like you know things would come from stuff and you would look back you would dig back through time Mm -hmm. Now it's just like Google. Like it's everything mm-hmm. is in the same plane. It's just another window. And I feel like that's what's happening to time now too because COVID completely screwed my sense of years and time. Mm-hmm. It feels like there was life before that and after that. Mm-hmm. And now it, it, the way information works, I feel like it's not linear anymore. It's kind of, I mean, there's something cool about it, I guess. It's a little abstract. It's kind of like Inception or something. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even, you know, you think about like... um that sort of like French New Wave influence that like made its way into Hollywood in the late sixties, early seventies, something like Downhill Racer or um what's the uh the James Coburn heist film where he in Alcatraz. Um you know, with, know there's you know, this nonlinear edit- editing became like people were kinda ready for it, even if it seemed shocking. Right. People were ready to disentangle it you know 60 years ago now right 50 years ago at least so it's not like it came out of nowhere but yeah but man, it was gradual it was gradual yeah, yeah right right now it's just like <laughs> the whole thing went off you know <laughs> like all at yeah. once yeah. i love jacques tati you know the movie playtime i don't know if oh, you've yeah. ever seen it but that, yeah. that movie is like great and then that's what makes it great it's like it's visual there's no, the narrative is like what uh, you can't even you know it's just like a collage basically mm-hmm. yeah. and uh now everything is collaged but the, it's one thing if you grab a bunch of magazines and make a collage it's another thing if you grab every material in the world and make a collage <laughs> instantaneously <laughs> and time blow itself your, yeah <laughs> it just blows your mind yeah i mean it, it really is like the end of 2001 all the time if you <laughs> let it be right. which is certainly uh you know, it's easy to get curmudgeonly and be like, oh, everyone's just looking at their phones. Like, we just live on these screens. But it's like, man, if that physical, like, the plane of this screen can ground me in something, at least it's something grounding me. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We'll consolidate it to this little thing that mm-hmm. will be. You know what it feels I, To me, it feels like... Um, I don't know if you were a skateboarder as a kid. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was never there. a good skateboarder, but I was a skateboarder. I'm right there with you. So, uh, you know, when you're skateboarding down a hill and you've you're 
you got it and you're going down and you're going faster and you feel pretty good. And then at a certain point you hit the death wobbles where mm-hmm. you realize at one point you were skating down the hill and now the skateboard's skating you down the hill and it's only a matter of time before you're just out of there. You know, like it yep. takes over. I feel like we were inventing this technology and using it and we're getting to the death wobble stage of where it's like, no, it's going to take over. Now we're just like innocent bystanders in the process. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the acceleration of uh, technical evolution. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I guess I'm an optimist though, because I'll say, well, it's inevitable that we take ourselves out and, you know, but, but then maybe my optimism extends to, well, maybe there's better without us. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a that's a, a cosmic optimism. Yeah, 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 it's it's more optimistic past yeah. us, I guess. Yeah, but uh, well, let's go back to Chicago. I mean, like growing up, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I guess I'm kind of informed a little bit by the documentary, which could sort of gives mm-hmm. you a linear time frame of things. But um, you know, growing up, music was the escape, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of artists who find, you know. Yeah. Making art is like the great escape of whatever chaos is going on. Yeah. That I feel like a lot of us, I don't know, maybe it's generational. I think we're of a similar generation. I'm, you know, there's a lot of chaos back then. Yeah. Like parents could be rogue. You know, there wasn't mm-hmm. like the accountability. It was just like a different time, you know? Yeah. And uh, music, I think, for me, was just a way to, I don't know, it was there was a love of music. It was fun to make music and it was cool, but it was also this thing where it's like, okay, these are my friends that I hang out with and we play music and it's kind of like a thing to get you out of the yeah, boredom yeah. or the Tri- tribal day-to-day yeah. life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, so it, you, that was something you connected with early on, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The feeling of like... Um, I used to do this thing. I don't know if I talk about this in the documentary. I don't remember. Um but I used, when I was a little kid, I would get, um, like, really agitated, like, this really intense anxiety, and I wouldn't, like, let it out. And my mom would let me, um, I'd be like, well, I, I just got to scream. And she would, like, let me go into the bathroom and close the door, and I would just, like, kind of scream and scream and scream until I fell down exhausted from screaming um did i talk about this in the documentary no i don't remember no. that then again um, my memory's not great sure. um, I, don't, I don't remember that that sounds like a so, cathartic primal yeah scream. yeah right so it was like this thing that from like age um you know maybe like five to twelve or something i i would occasionally do this maybe i maybe it was more like five to ten um and then but my dad didn't know that, like, my mom let me do that. Um, and it wasn't, like, all the time, you know. It was, like, I don't know, quarterly or something, you know. Yeah, when you hit, um, when you hit that point. Yeah, because I was, like, a very well-behaved kid. Like, I was kind of a smartass, but, like, um, yeah, wasn't particularly daring or anything. Um, so one time I, like, you know was like mom i gotta go scream and she's like no you can't your dad's home like he'll freak out and i was like i'm, I'm gonna do it you know and that became like this big <laughs> thing um and it's only like years and years later that i could piece together like then the starting of punk bands was me being able to like do that 
and it was okay in that context. Like it was that same energy coming out. Um, yeah. With a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't only okay. It was encouraged, you know? Yeah. Um, I would gather, there were, I would gather that's a testament to a lot of other people feeling that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're, you know, you go to that show and you're doing that. You're the primal scream for everyone there. Yeah, right. And we know those energies of those shows back then. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. I guess that was the way you get it out, you know, because yeah. some of those shows were, I would hang in the back. It was a little intimidating. There was a lot of physicality, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's very weird, you know, because it's still like, um, you know, you you've done the same thing like as a creative person like as you become an adult you kind of professionalize what was your passion and then it becomes kind of strange but it's also like having like a eyedropper or something of like okay what's the dose of this you know and my my shows don't involve me screaming and falling down anymore but um it feels like I'm channeling the same energy, you know, right. or getting the same. Um, I just have different needs as a, you know, 47-year-old man than I did as a 10-year-old, you know, right. or 17-year-old. Yeah. yeah, no, I remember, you know, I tell students at school that, you know, I teach where I went to undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, hey, when we were here, we were sleeping up here and not long. Like, we were just working all night and we'd just hang mm-hmm. out and listen to music and you know just work and then take breaks and bullshit in the hallway or whatever and then just keep working you know and i can't Mm -hmm. do that anymore but Mm -hmm. when i go to the studio and i'm in hour three or four of working and i hit that kind of flow state of where i forget about the rest of the world and Mm -hmm. all the bullshit of the world that's kind of like my meditative nirvana you know where i just yeah yeah. that's what i'm trying to connect back to without the sleep deprivation acne and terrible diet (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, and it's it's also like, um, you know, your analogy of the skateboard da- going down the hill and its momentum, it's kind of like when you reach that flow state with your own work, um, you know, you're coming up against like the limits of your own imagination, your own uh, technical proclivity, and uh, that's, you know, that's why practice is like important to me and like you know spending hours you know I spent two hours today just like uh organizing shelves and routing things in our practice space like I didn't play a second of music but it was like that's all set up so that when I do go there flow state can happen you know yeah yeah so it's funny because I feel like when you're younger well obviously you have more time when you're younger Mm -hmm. you know the day-to-day stuff doesn't bog you down as much but it's almost like you're inviting the chaos around it for inspiration as you get older Mm -hmm. you want to like you want to quiet all the other noise so you can get back to that creative genesis you know of where you can just be focused yeah it's like you you want to make noise when you're younger around it and when you get older you want to like silence the noise and get into you know i think it's just it's it's an evolution of you know creativity in relation to finding things out as opposed to then like, okay, refining things or like tweaking things or adjusting things, you know, Mm -hmm. which I think is 
you know, there's something to be said for both of it. I look at early work that I've done and I'm like, boy, and there's, I, sometimes it's cringy and sometimes it's like, well, there was so much energy and I just, Mm -hmm. I didn't know yet. Like I didn't, I was just pushing through new areas, which was really exciting. Yeah. I actually, um, the first five Joan of Arc records are being, (coughs) excuse me, um, first five records are being reissued, um, next early next year and so I listened to them for the first time um and I think like all the bad reviews back then just sort of like got in my head and you know so these are the records from 97 to 2002 or something Mm -hmm. and um basically and I've never heard any of them since 2002 like very occasionally we would play an old song and we'd like listen to that song to like learn the parts but i never you know and that wasn't even like listening to a whole song that's like listening to a moment to be like okay how do i play this um so it was really hearing them for the first time and the bad reviews like just the total vitriolic scorn that they invited you know ever since then i've been walking around like oh, well, I hope uh, this person can, like, take what I do seriously or, like, accept it, you know, even though I'm the guy that made those things. Um, And then I listened to him and was like, granted, these are, like, made to my own biases, obviously, but I was like, these are awesome. Like, why have I been walking around ashamed for 20 years? Like, it's just the... I let those bad reviews get in the back of my head for so long. I was embarrassed of those things, and now yeah, I hear it's them. It's like the review was louder than the music in a way. Right? Yeah, exactly right, and the, and it's like, you know, long term effects. Yeah, but if I mean, you're a sensitive human, that's going to happen. I remember when I was a kid in tenth grade, there was a girl who lived two blocks from me. It was very nice, and we were walking back. We were all joking, walking back from school, and she told me I walked like I have a stick up my butt. And I swear to God for the rest, uh, for like, right. I don't know how long I was just self-conscious about how I walked. Yeah. <laughs> just like eat you. It doesn't even, it might have been a joke. I don't even know if she was serious. I don't know how I walked, but it, it affected me. You know? Yeah. Right. That's the power of, you know, like if you are sensitive, that's why sometimes I'm, I'm envious of people who just have the water off the duck's back. Like mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. I'm just going to do yeah. what I do. It doesn't bother me because that kind of stuff can really get in your head. I've never read a review of a Joan of Arc record. What was their gripe? I don't know, man. It was just like, um, just hated so much everything about it. And like a couple of years ago, a friend of mine that was involved with the making of those, like sent me this link to this guy's website. And, um, and I was just like, what is this? Why am I looking at this? You know, it's just like he's the programmer for like an oldies station. And he had uh, curated the soundtrack for Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. And I was like, what am I looking at? What is this? And he's like, this is the guy that wrote all the reviews for those Joan of Arc records. <laughs> and I was just like, like, oh, yeah. okay. So like this guy... 
who like you know maybe is a perfectly nice guy but it was like he wasn't the person that should be it's it's clear in many ways that he shouldn't have been the dominant voice right for for how these were um talked about you know yeah pitchfork just really uh they really hated me i don't know i don't know what i did well i mean the thing is is you know when people react there's this adage i remember being in grad school and you know starting to think about going out and trying to show work and there was this adage like you would hear teachers say something like well any review is good because they're paying attention to you so even if they Mm -hmm. slam you they feel like what you're doing is impactful enough to be you know responded to because there's so much out there that's being made that people don't even respond to so which sounds great doesn't feel great no it's much more difficult when you're like the um recipient of it you know um yeah especially i mean it's like someone it 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 felt like uh if someone like says you smell bad because it's kind of like you can't help like your own body smell and uh you're not aware of it because you live with it. Right. You know? So it was kind of like their criticism of the records wasn't like, it was so harsh that it was just sort of like, you stink. So it was just sort of this thing that like, I would love to make records that people like. I want good reviews. I want to sell lots of records. Like I didn't make records for people to hate them. I, I want people to like them. Yeah, um, like it, there's a there's a an ability to maybe have compelling ideas about pushing the way songs can work, or the structure or the sound or whatever, and still at the same time want people to be intrigued by that. You know, oh yeah, of course. Just because you're pushing the envelope on structure or convention doesn't mean that you're trying to piss people off. But I think sometimes. Oh no. Critics I th- I, or people think that way. They're like, oh, well, oh, this person's trying to be a smartass, you know, when in yeah. actuality, you're just trying to, like, no, take it's something truly a step like, further. Yeah, there was, like, um, one of the sort of mission statements at the beginning of Joan of Arc was we used to talk about music for no audience. And what we meant by that was, like, we were so deeply invested in, like, going to all these no-wave shows, going to all these free jazz shows, going to all these, like, you know drone shows rock shows whatever and we were like we don't we want to make a thing that none of these clicks can claim as their own but we didn't what we meant by that saying music for no audience it meant music for no prefab audience and in fact it's music for everyone ideally you know making music it's a utopian ambition you know yeah, like, and you're not trying to isolate yourself by being part of a genre Right. So you're just saying, well, this is open to anyone. It's not like, oh, well, that's like hardcore. I don't like hardcore. That's metal. Right. I don't like metal. Yeah. Like that same comfort of finding a tribe as a kid. You know, by the time I was 20 or something, I was just like, sort of like, I, I can't be part of a tribe. Like, that's gross. Right. Yeah. Which is uh, when at that time, though, tribes were like a big thing. Well, I guess people say it now, but I think back then more than ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Like, look at the art world. It was like in the 50s, you were an abstract painter or you were, you know, you know what I mean? It was that tribe. Not, there were like 15 yeah. people getting shows and that was it. And right. like everyone but else. They were all like, financed by the CIA, though. So. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they had that benefit. That's true. That's always an advantage. Yeah. Um, but you had to know. I mean, there were people at the shows. It was like people were coming to see it and liked it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um,. Yeah, I, you, I mean, well, I can't... Did you exercise the demons of those critical responses? It was a, or are they still it was in a, there? It was a really... It was great timing because the label that's reissuing them had talked to me a bit about... You know, I knew it was coming. Um, But my wife, Jen, and I had spent a year and a half... You know, the beginning of... There was just terrible in terms of music business it was just terrible timing of like we broke up Joan of Arc mostly because there wasn't enough people coming to the shows anymore for us to be able to like uh, tour as much as I wanted to and pay four or five people you know Um, just wasn't enough money to go around so it's really beating the system to be a married couple band because you go on tour, you don't miss home. Right. You know, or if you miss home, you're missing home with your person. Um, the money, you know, our expenses are shared. Um, and like, if you're like a solo person, you got to motivate yourself, but now we have each other to keep each other motivated. If you're in a full band, you're working around everyone's schedules, but like our schedule is the same. So it's it's like an, you know, it was a real life hack to be like, okay, we're gonna be this couple band. Um, and then our first record came out, and we were like, not happy with like, um, the job, the label, and management we're doing. So we like fired our manager and left our label and our booking agent. Um, retired at the same time and we were like and this is the first time since I was 19 that I didn't have all those things you know um, and we are like this is terrifying but it's cool like we can have a big fresh restart like we'll find the people to work with that like feel right you know um, and then the pandemic hit so everyone was thrown into this chaos so it, it's extra um layers of administrative uh confusion now but we so we spent a year and a half then making this record every day and finished and then that's when i had to go listen to all the joan of arc records um so it's a pretty good setup for me you know because i was had the sort of postpartum of like okay this giant thing is done now now what yeah well um had you does the uh, are you you're starting to play out now? I see. So yeah, are you guys are yeah. going to start going back out. Does it feel like things are somewhat normalizing a little bit? It's weird. It feels very much like starting over. Um, well, like I said, with that, you know, the super long delays for releases. It's like we need to. We made a really big album. It's it's 19 songs, 63 minutes, wow. and 
we were like, okay, if it's this hard to get a record out now, we don't, we aren't going to be able to do this once a year like we used to. Like we're making, this is our album for this five years. Right. And it's not like we were like looking to make it longer. We wrote 60 songs and 19 made the cut. Um, now with the various labels we've talked to all talking about this delay, we cut the record in two and are self-releasing one part of it. Um, you know, in time, just really quick on CD and tape to get it out, um, in time for these shows, but it's still like, just who knows with, and, and not to mention self-releasing these things, depending on how many we make, like, I don't know how many people buy tapes or CDs now. And it's, you know, we thought we were going to do this certain number and we did the math today and we're like, okay, so, uh, we sell those for forty dollars each. We break even. <laughs> like, okay, imagine liking this band and going to the merch table at the end of the show and being like, "Oh yeah, we got tapes for forty dollars." <laughs> but that's what it's going to take to break even on yeah, it. It's yeah. crazy. It is. It's the music business is like, you know, a lot of people complain about the art business, but man, the music business is just. You know, it, it just feels like not conducive to musicians really it's, being able to do it. You know, I mean, he, here's the thing: like they're diametrically opposed because they want to sell something new. And you know, I can I can see like someone like Van Morrison, right? I I love his first couple albums. And then there's actually a couple moments in like the '80s where I'm like, eh, that's all right. But like new Van Morrison, like no way. You know, but um, that's different because he was, you know, wildly successful and probably had every opportunity to get cut off from the source of his initial inspiration. Right. Um, turns out it took me a long time to get good at what I do. Like, I'm so much better now at everything about making records than I was when I was 22. But people heard the records I made when I was 22 because that's when I was like a new thing and the labels thought they could sell it. And um, as you get better at this thing, there's actually you know more skillful, less professional opportunities. It's a really uh, difficult paradox to respond to yeah no i can imagine that's it's like the the format of the way everything is disseminated changes so much that you know an organic growth as an artist it it's on its own linear track really like we can Mm -hmm. only progress the way we make work and change to the work we made before it Mm -hmm. but the way that structure and everything else around it has shifted so quickly and changed so much that you know sometimes it makes me feel like i'm like a hundred years old you know like did i live you you live you know from the days of like maximum rock and roll and seven inches to you know instantly streaming records like Mm -hmm. you know on that hour that it's released oh yeah i mean i remember like when our first records came out um and it was sort of like if you could deliver the 
Masters to the label, it'll be in the stores in three months. And, you know, if you want to go on tour, you could have like six weeks notice for the booking agent. Um, Now it's a year and a half for all this stuff. And um, oh, what was my point about that? Um, ah, I, I like that forget. shift in in the time that you know everything. What well, it took so long to make stuff in a way, but it was more direct. I would imagine now there's so much peripheral stuff and noise that you know. Oh, I know what I was going to say about it. Was the there was a sort of like assumption at the big indies at that time that like they would give a record sort of three months after it came out and if it didn't pick up steam then they'd kind of like you know do some triage with their resources and I have a friend who had a record come out um, you know in the recent past on a big indie and on the release date was told that the label was going to cut resources because it didn't get traction. And it was like on the release date. I know. Like, sorry, you didn't build up enough buzz on Instagram or something before the thing is even out. Right. It's like the pre-order stuff means more than who actually buys it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just time has been compressed, I think. You know, it's just you know, the, the demand and the risk, I guess. I don't know. It's just so complicated. Yeah, and I, I, I don't mean to be come across as super curmudgeonly about this. Like, it's just because, um, like I said, music itself, I've never been so engaged um, as a listener and a maker. But yeah. um, Well, I think that's the end goal. I mean, ultimately, if we can make the work, that's the most important thing. Yeah. You know, and the one thing that... The one advantage I think music has in a way is that, you know, you can be at home, you can have, nowadays you can, I mean, my son can write a record in like a night. Right. <laughs> you know, like we used to have to like go hire, go like rent a studio and all that shit. That would take forever. You know, now you can do it like with with art in a lot of circumstances, you have to have a big studio and you have to pay, like it's like, you mm-hmm. know, the, the materials and all that stuff and music still feels like it's attainable in that way of you mm-hmm. can still make it. You know, and all the while, are you like, when did you start writing? Were you always writing? Um, I mean, you were writing lyrics, which were always yeah, kind yeah. of poetic and very <clears throat> compelling. So, w- yeah, it never occurred to me to write a novel. Um, it was really like, um, I got divorced and didn't, you know, like many people when they get divorced was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, so I went to grad school. And really, I was interested in, like, poetry and music and, um, you know, social questions of various kinds. Um, the occult. <laughs> you know, these <laughs> same things that have always been in my mind. And it was really like, once I was in school, and I, I would have been 33 when I went back, so I was a good bit older than a lot of people. And um, it was just kind of like, man, if I don't like uh, funnel all these things into like one sort of major project, it um, 
doesn't seem meaningful or something. So the first book was definitely kind of like a way to organize my thinking while getting through a grad program. And then I liked it, and I just kept doing it. And when I finished the last one, which was my third novel, I was just like, you know, seven years after I started it. And, you know, at its longest, it was 220,000 words, and it was finally published at like 78,000. The day I, you know sent off the final edit, I was like, I'm never doing this again. Like, no way. (laughs) Like, the cost-benefit analysis, it is, I will not do it again. I can imagine. I, I, you know, I I mentioned to you that I've been reading this, and I'm just, like, curious, like, I'm, a couple questions I had about it was, A, when you Which one are you reading? This is the the karaoke karaoke singer guide. Right, so that was the first one. Yeah, I figured I'd start with that. You know, I've listened to your music since way back, but I just didn't even... I mean, maybe I knew that you wrote stuff, but I just didn't... I didn't have it. I didn't come across it. So when I got it, you know, and, and it's really... It's really interesting. I was like, well, is this like the narrative... Was it there? Was it mm. something that you fleshed out first? Like I'm, I don't know that much about writing, writing like right, writing right. novels and stories, and right. I'm always impressed with a a very deep narrative like this that goes deep. It's like, do you have it all in there, and then it's just fleshed no, out? No, you know, honestly, um, that book I was a hundred pages into it before I was like, okay, this is going to be a novel, like. I had a hundred pages that I was like, what do these have in common? And, um, I can tell you the process. I, I remember I, um, I started, this is going to sound so insane if you're in the middle of reading it, but this is how it came into being. I started by finding an alphabetical list of body parts. And then I just like used each body part as a, um, prompt Mm-hmm. And just sort of free wrote about like, oh, elbow. This is the story of my elbow, blah, blah, blah. And so I had 100 pages of these stories that didn't... It's not like they were about body parts. They were just... The body parts what prompted it. Um, and then I like sat with the 100 pages and was like... I don't remember how many things that was. Like how many body parts were on the list, you know. 75 let's say um i was like oh these four are the story of the same person these six go together these 10 are this person and then i like sort of like let the characters emerge from that you know that's fascinating i don't know how did you come up with that (laughs) i don't know man i'm really into like letting things emerge like i really so the the story itself of like um you know this um like the will right there's like confusion about a will mm-hmm. like i just wanted like the simplest kind of corniest noir conceit to frame it all because i was like i can't write a story like any story i would come up with seems so phony so i'm just going to take the phoniest story possible you know back from that 
Yeah. Well, the reason also, dude, is really interesting because in, you know, hearing the lyrics in song that you write, I mean, when you write a song, it's like a two minute, three minute, you know, it's not that long, mm. really. It's like a almost a yeah. poem in a way. And yeah, it, there's sure. a lot of wordplay in the stuff that you mm. do. Whereas like this is like a long, you know, it's like it's a long slog. <laughs> yeah. It's an exact I mean, opposite. when I'm at the merch table after a show and people are looking at my books, I'm always like. I'm like telling people to read the second one. I'm like, this is probably the best one because I was <laughs> still serious, but I was knew what I was doing better. And this right. third one, it's kind of just like uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's I don't know. But that that's the one where I was like, man, I was asking too much of the reader. You know, like it's. It's I think you just have to be ready for it. I mean, I read yeah, Infinite yeah. Jest. It took me mm-hmm. a while, but, you know, mm-hmm. that was a lot to ask. <laughs> <laughs> right. And is that a relevant standard? Yeah. Like I'm I, asking too much of the audience? I don't know. Oh, I mean, you you write short pieces for people to listen to. You know, you write mm-hmm. sh- in both forms. So, yeah. I mean, I enjoy it. I mean, I think there's always something nice about that variety in a way. But... um yeah, I Would know. You? I'm looking forward to the other to reading the other ones too. I'm Thank just you. slow at reading because I'm always busy visually. With yeah, everything. right. I mean, we've evolved to be slow at reading. Exactly. Um, what about uh, uh, what's like your favorite book, or, or who are your influences when it comes to writing? Um, I really love the Roberto Bolano books that everyone loves, and um. Um, there's this short story writer, Gary Lutz, who I think just transitioned maybe and is Gary L. Lutz now. Um, and I mean, I remember reading Savage Detectives and like, um, when I was a little kid, I used to read Huck Finn and like, I read it so much that I would like get to the last page and just like go back to the first page and keep reading, you know, like, yeah. um, and Savage Detectives was the first book that made me feel like that as an adult. Right. Um, um, and Gary Lutz is more like, um, really textural, thick language. It's not like, it's not like Joyce or like Ezra Pound or something in terms of like its density being like, oh, there's this meaning. I just mean it, you know, it's not like, not to say there isn't compacted meaning, but it's not um, dense like you're like, how do I decode this? It's just so uh, rhythmic. I don't know. Gary Lutz, I just think is like the best. Um yeah. So I was definitely aware of, like, um, and then I was really into, like, reality hunger, and then, like, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Wittgenstein's nephew, is that Reader's Block? Markson. Um, These sort of, like, collage novels. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I was pretty aware at the beginning that I wanted to synthesize these things. Um, and then, you know, for the last book, it really like, you know, those kind of sound like 
lofty ambitions. Like I wanted to have like the charm and readability of um, Savage Detectives, which also has like this intense collage element, but then like this more like, so you could zoom in and it's very textural and then zoom out and it's, you know, uh, panoramic. But, um, you know, the last novel I was really like, I want to write the kind of like Kurt Vonnegut or Richard Brodigan book that I loved as a, like when I was like, like I remember the moment I picked up a Von, uh, Brodigan book for the first time and it was like a life changing moment for me, you know? Um, yeah. Those old like books when you're younger like that, like nine stories for me was such a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it just like shaking me. I don't. Yeah. It's been a little while since I've read. Dude, it but, holds up. Yeah. I, I think so. They're they're just really impactful, you know. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So I was running that press that released the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who was doing it when they put that out moved to Europe, and I had just gotten home from like a couple months of being on tour and didn't know what I was gonna do. Like, was just, like, totally, like, clueless and like, what I was going to start doing next week. And he was like, why don't you take over Featherproof? And I was like, yeah, sure. I sh- that sounds amazing. Um, you know, it turns out I'm not very good at selling books. <laughs> like, <coughs> it didn't occur to me that you have to sell the things, you know. Right, right. Um so I did that for six years. I ran the small press, and I was teaching creative writing at different universities around town for a decade. And when the pandemic hit, I stopped teaching, and I stopped running the publisher. And, um, you know, for the first time in, like, 10 or 15 years, I, like, can love reading again. And it feels so good. It's like this thing that, you know, I had made the mistake of, like, professionalizing what was my, uh, I guess maybe I thought, oh, music's not working out. I can professionalize this other thing I like. But then it was like, ah, now I just ruined what was always was my... Um, Your escape? Yeah. Like the free zone. Yeah, it's like once you try to, you know, in a way market it or make it work for you, it can yeah. kind of strangle out some of that freedom that you find in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy, you know, as far as that's concerned. It's like finding that sweet spot, like a balance between everything, you know. I actually I, I have this new job. I'm writing copy for a search engine optimization company that sells hearing aids. And wow. it, just, it just feels so incredibly ironic to be like, <laughs> playing loud music for 30 years and now I sell hearing aids. Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I can imagine. I mean, I never wore earplugs when I when we would practice in the bands that mm-hmm. I was in and some of them were pretty loud. And uh, I have tinnitus. You know, I can't imagine yeah, yeah. what it's like to be a musician. I mean, was it, uh, who was it? Who's the famous rock guy who can't tour anymore? Because, oh, is it, wait, who is it? Huey Lewis, he can't hear. Oh, because his tinnitus. Yeah, like his. It's. I guess it's really bad to where he can't even. Right. Yeah, that's real. You, it's you crazy. know, 
here's an amazing Huey Lewis story. Ah, uh, this is there what is, I'm in for. <laughs> yeah. There is a Huey Lewis in the News cover band that features members of Huey Lewis in the News. Nice. And like Are they called the News? <laughs> They are not. I mean, they're 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 you know they they're called some like stupid pun on like right right you know um, but yeah they w- were making more money playing in a cover band of themselves. Than, I mean, maybe this adds maybe the tinnitus adds a new depth to this and right. explains this. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but no, it's funny the idea that like oh well, if you just do <laughs> the same band as a cover band. It's like if Kiss just like wore different makeup or something. It was like we're a Kiss cover band and they make more money than Kiss. Uh, that's that's yeah. nostalgia. Sometimes yeah. nostalgia yeah. just sells. Right. I mean, maybe you know, start that Captain Jazz cover band where it's like oh smooth yeah. jazz versions of Captain Jazz. <laughs> I did see a um, a Neil Michael Haggerty show once right after Royal Trucks broke up, where he hired Josh Abrams and. I can't remember who else is in the band, but Josh, like, set it up where um, it might have been like Neil Michael Haggerty's first solo show in Chicago, and he had a jazz group, like a jazz trio, playing Royal Trucks covers as the opening <laughs> band. That's pretty great. I'd pay to see that. Yeah, it was <laughs> so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I remember Town and Country? Wasn't Josh played? Oh like yeah, Town yeah. And Country, Josh is in he? that. Yeah, those mm-hmm. were some good live shows. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Did people like them? Did they get good reviews? Because they could be, you know, tired. I don't know. I was the kind of guy, I would go see Tony Conrad play one note for an hour and be happy. Yeah, yeah. I'd go tell right. people about it afterwards. Yeah. And then when I think of it, I'm like, you know, yeah, I guess that can be tedious to some people. I used to show my students Koyana Scotsy, thinking like, just sitting there like, right? Isn't this amazing? And they're like, their faces were of like sheer terror. You know, like, what is... They were bored? <laughs> No, they were just like, "What the hell am I watching?" They didn't. They weren't ready right. for it yet. Yeah, you know? I mean, Philip Glass can do it to you after, if you're not ready. Yeah, it could yeah. be tedious. To say there's the a least. there's a really funny video that one of my bandmates has of um, his graduation from Art Institute in the late '90s, and it's um, you know they're like sitting in like the pavilion during the graduation ceremony, and this is like pre-phone, so it's like someone with a camcorder. And he just pans down the row, and it's like his dad asleep, his mom asleep, his sister asleep, <laughs> his brother asleep. And then he pans to the stage, and Philip Glass is like the guest, and he's just playing these two notes. <laughs> <laughs> knocked everyone out. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I love that stuff, though. I mean, I, I guess it takes, you know, certain people are into certain things, I guess. Mm-hmm. But you have to know, you know, that you know the music that you were doing is you know whatever the the critical response was to it which you know clearly the guy who's writing for playboy or whoever now who wrote those stuff wasn't probably Mm -hmm. really you know the best person to write about this but you have to know that that music was to a certain it's independent music it's you know it's not like rolling stones or whatever but it meant a lot to a lot of people. Like in that time of their life, it just struck that nerve, that chord that really resonated, you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously that's like amazing to hear, but I don't know. And it's not like, um, I 
it's not, you know, I, the music that comes out is because it strikes that same chord in me, you know? Right. So it's not like I'm immune to its effects. I'm in fact the primary beneficiary of it, you know? Right. And, um, which especially, you know, doing like this very intense full-time immersive collaboration with my wife, it's like, we love each other. She's the coolest. And she surprises me a hundred times a day. And together we create this thing that's like, it doesn't, you know, sometimes like in a band practice, someone wants to change something and it feels like a compromise, but like a band with this kind of intimacy, it's like a new thing emerges that neither of us would have done on our own. And it's, you know, and obviously that happens in collaborations. A new thing comes out that's better than anyone could have imagined. But, um, yeah, I guess this is all just to say that, like, I feel that more deeply than anyone, you know, but I can't yeah. understand. So I can sort of understand what I hope people are getting from it, but I can't um, understand what it means. Yeah, you know no, I mean? you can't because you're in it, you know. Yeah. It's like my wife and I collaborated on something and we made something that changed our life, you know. And uh, he's, you know, he's pretty interesting and a handful or whatever, but, you know, we can't yeah. see him outside of who he is. You know, it's right, hard right. to step yeah. outside of it. But the thing is, is like, if you're going to take the, the criticism from some of that music and let it live in there and try to evict it, but it's in the back of your mind or whatever, like you think, then do you... At the same time, you have to, uh, you know, to come to terms with the fact that, like, you're, you've are you made music that doesn't sound like it's singular. There's nothing like, and the reason the music is, because there's other music like Captain Jazz, a little bit. I mean, it is unique, mm-hmm. but there's no one that sounds like you. There's no, it will always be singular in that sense. Mm-hmm. And the same with Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, I think, even more so because it's so, you know, with Jeremy and, like, what he's doing and mm-hmm. it's just, like, different. You know what I mean? And some people aren't going to like it. It's not going to stick. But yeah, yeah, you have to be buoyed by the fact that you're create, you've created something that will just be singular and unique and, and I mean, you know, that's art, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, you know, it's intense, man. I, like, obviously, and that's amazing, right? Like... Of course, it's incredibly satisfying to hear that. You know, it feels validating. And, you know, I've gone to Brazil a couple times, and it's, like, really crazy to me that I can, like, show up to Brazil, and there's, like, all these people there excited to hear the songs, you know? Um, So I've, like, gotten to, like, go all these places and make all these friends, and... I feel incredibly lucky in that way, but then it's also um, the frustration is more like no. Now I'm not. Now I'm really struggling to find what's so frustrating. It's actually the best. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I yes. can't think of anything to complain about. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I. I guess the point. I'm, the thing that struck me is when. You know, because I had, there's probably so many people who, 
who have that connection to the music or feel that way, but you just never know or the, you don't hear about it because like someone like myself, I will go listen to that music. I mean, I have a little more of a personal relationship to Joan of Arc in a way because mm-hmm. like I went to high school with Todd and Jeremy and they were, you know, mm-hmm. I used to hang out in Jeremy's room when we skateboard as a kid and he'd take apart his radios and put them back mm-hmm. together. So when he did was doing what he did in your band, it made total sense because that's Jeremy. Right. That's just the right. way he is. So I can't really divorce my experience, my knowing those guys and right. then that music, but cap and jazz existed before that. I didn't, I knew that music that was before Jeremy or Todd or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. So, and you know, like there's people out there who've had this relationship, that music probably you would never know. They're just not saying anything or it's not. Yeah. As, yeah. No, like I mean, and when I talked to Andrew, who's an amazing artist, a great mm-hmm. guy. And you know, we brought it up. We were like, Oh yeah. Both like, you know, that blew our minds when we were younger, you know? Mm-hmm. So it kind of like made, it jogged my that memory and that idea that you know there's these certain things that are you know created that have an impact just like salinger was for me like mm-hmm. nine stories like knocked me out you know so it's you know, i mean obviously not a lot of people an, do that yeah you know, i mean obviously that's like amazing to hear but I, like like i said i can't really understand it like from my perspective it feels like i really bet my life on this thing you know um and there's something really cool about starting over, over and over again, because I've never had the luxury of like, uh, okay, a lot of people bought this album. I can like rest for a while right. or what, you know, I have no job security. Like comfort. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I have no like, uh, you know, there's no 401k. There's no job security and it's like you know when after um the vaccine and people things started opening again i started bartending again for the first time in years and it was like like you know that's pretty cool when you're like in your 20s right right yeah at 47 it was just like what am i doing like yeah and this is like my job like i'm all right this is my job options cool right. it really it hurts like it physically hurts but Besides don't the you fact think that that's like, the trade-off though in a way because you've been able to i'm not yeah. saying that musicians shouldn't be able to make a, a living and have a retirement but right, right. you also didn't have well you you have work jobs but i mean you're not stuck on a nine to five where you're just hating yeah, yeah. life every single day yeah you know? yeah there's, there's so it's kind of like you know yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It evens out. I'm not, I, and I'm, I'm not complaining because I've had like amazing opportunities. Um, but you know, in the middle of it, like especially a time like now where it's just been a, you know, we finished mixing the record a couple months ago. We really had reason to believe and we're hopeful that like this one label was going to work out with, and it didn't. And then there's like, okay, well now we've moved through plans A and B. Okay, now we're, and it's just like. Yeah, can't sell those cassettes for forty dollars. <laughs> well, I think to be honest, too, I think part of that a deeper discussion on that is that you know this country, I think that the value of the arts isn't sustained. Like, there's not a reasonable, <clears throat> you yeah. know, investment in the arts like there is in a lot of other places in the world where it's valued. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like great, yeah. I mean, in America, music is huge. Like everyone listens to music. Everyone loves music, but they don't there's not a system to take care of musicians or to really 
foster it. It's, it's yeah, the cutthroat I'm, environment of it, you know. I, t- I tend to have a bias, too, for making things that kind of successfully fall between two chairs with this. With, like, you know, most of the music I see, you know, for every rock band I see, I've seen, like, three experimental shows or, you know, right. what you would call experimental. But, like... And if I go to see a rock band, like I'll know some people at the show and have a few friends. But when I go to the experimental shows, I like know everyone. And it's like, um, but I, I'm not really, what I actually make isn't accepted by either community, you know? Cause it's like the people in the experimental scenes are like, oh, you know, he just, this is our friend. He plays in the rock bands. And the people in the rock bands are like, I don't know, this is like pretentious or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of my own doing, but, um, well, just it's all my curiosity, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and you have the, yeah, I, you're, you're born and raised in Chicago, right? I grew up in the suburbs. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, you've been, I mean, you don't know life living wise outside of you know it's not like you no i spent spent a few months at a time in certain places but right but you had the advantage of being in an amazing music city yeah yeah. a lot of great music yeah yeah totally i mean you probably if you grew up in you know i don't want to shit on a town but if you grew up somewhere where there's not a lot of options to see great live music you might not have had that inclination to push things to the extent because you just weren't exposed to it you know yeah, and it's it's true that, like, especially with Chicago, like, you think about, like, house music or, like, wax tracks or even post-rock later, it's kind of like the collapsing of forms is kind of like the specialized thing here. Like, yeah. it, it is like a hybrid city. Um, you know, like Stirrup that I was talking about last night, uh, that I saw last night, um, amazing hybrid of like every element was totally familiar, but the way it's put together, it's just like this completely unique thing. Yeah. It's, it's funny how that in Chicago it works. Like, like I remember finding like juke, like Chicago footwork. I didn't know what it was. I did. mm-hmm. All of a sudden it's like, it's this weird hybrid of like drum and bass house, like, mm-hmm. you know, fast electronic, like 808. I was just like, what is this? You know, it's a great blend of stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, this is a kind of extreme example, but I have seen, like, juke footwork things at, like, shows with people doing, I'm not going to say noise, but, like, very abstract kind of serious. And, you know, like, the communities still overlap here in really inspiring ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like, you know, I think it's the culmination of the Mississippi of some like all this stuff coming right it's just like landed you know yeah. that's where it landed and uh it's, it's a pretty beautiful like you know circumstance I think yeah I feel as good about Chicago as I ever have it yeah nowadays you know people are leaving their their migratory cities of where they went to they go back to where they're coming from because so much of you know what made drove people to big cities is happening now in smaller cities you know yeah and I, i'm that seems to be translating to touring and i hope that's the case yeah because there was a trend for the previous decades where a lot of bands would just be like we just play la new york you know right it's, 
Um, a lot of people come out to those shows. Not yeah. maybe not. You know, the that's most so stupid. We might not right. get it. Yeah, but I think nowadays that's going to change. You know, there's yeah. more people out there. So. Well, how can uh, for people who aren't hyper familiar with? I mean, I can't even. I'll do it in the intro, but you've been in a lot of projects. You've done a lot of stuff, but like, oh yeah, what? Now, how can people support your music and what you're oh, doing? I would say check out Good Fuck, which is um, me and my wife's band. Mm-hmm. We we've are releasing our new record just under our own names because had enough. Uh, it's hard enough to be a band at the moment that we you know the uphill battle of our band name right. was just kind of like you know what it is not worth it like. Right. Uh, so yeah I would say check out Good Fuck yeah that's what I'm most excited about in the new EP uh, just as Tim Kinsella and Jenny Pulse we have the EP Gimme Altamont and uh, the LP Giddy Skelter um, coming out sometime in the next hundred years hopefully and tickets are available for the, the oh, tour yeah. that you're going on which is yeah yeah how do they get that? What's the best place to do it? Uh, yeah, our website, Kinsella okay. Impulse LLC. I don't know. Kinsella are Impulse. You, are you going to come to New York? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. In the fall. I'll be there. All right. Awesome. Well, thank cool. you so much for having me. Thank you, man. It was great yeah. to, to talk. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for too. taking the time. I look forward to catching up sometime uh, less formalized, too. For sure. Sounds good. i uh-huh.